0: Welcome to Practical Christian Living.
1: Now, I don't know whether the Lord's going to come back tomorrow or five years or 10 years or a 100 years. That's not the point. The point is, there's, there's two aspects. Number one, that we believe that He could come back at any moment. And in that sense, because Jesus could come back before this service is done, then the day of the Lord is at hand.
0: Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour when he will return for his church. So, we are supposed to live ready all the times, keeping our eyes on the skies and waiting for God to keep his promise of rapturing his bride. Whether it's tomorrow, in our lifetime, maybe in our children's lifetime, Peter reminds us no matter when it happens, we are to be serious and watchful in our prayers at all times. We continue through the book of 1 Peter. We hope you're being blessed by it. Here comes chapter four, verses seven through 11 with Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson.
1: Father, uh, we thank you that we are not left to the philosophies of men or worldly wisdom, but towards your word. And so we want to learn what it says here. We want to learn what it says. We want to know what it means. And we want to know what it means in relationship to you and to your people. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Maybe you have noticed that it is now a popular thing for someone to say, I don't really believe that Jesus is coming back soon. Or, I don't really worry about whether Jesus is going to come back soon. I just want to go ahead and teach what the Bible says. I just want to go ahead and do what we're supposed to do. And if he comes back, he comes back. And if he doesn't come back, he doesn't come back. In fact, the Bible says that in the last days, scoffers are going to arise, saying, where is the promise of his coming? I always thought that would be from outside of the church that the church would look at us and go, you guys really believe that Jesus is going to come back and get you? Leave your clothes behind. The answer to that, by the way, is yes. I believe that Jesus is coming back for us because Jesus said in John 14, 1, I am coming back and I will get you that where I am there you may be also. He doesn't say I'm coming back to be where you are. He says, I'm coming back to get you, that where I am, you may be also, and I believe that'll take place. But scoffers have arisen within the church, and they look at those of us that believe that Jesus could come back at any moment, and they say, oh, you guys, you guys are the pre-rapture guys, right? And if you do any blog reading, Christian blog reading, then you'll know that we are mocked a lot these days. Because we believe that Jesus could come back at any moment. And I really have to wonder if there isn't such a turn towards post-tribulationalism because of a love for this world. The Bible says not to love the world nor the things in the world. And if you believe that Jesus could come back at any moment, then he might ruin your plans. He's going to interrupt what's going on next week. But I'll tell you what. If Jesus were to return tonight, the glory that you and I would be experiencing would far outweigh any vacation you have planned to Cancun (laughs) or wherever else, whatever else it might be that you are looking forward to is far outshined by the return of the glorious one who one day we will see and know that we love and truly loves us. Now, here in 1 Peter, Peter is writing to to churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey today, and he's preparing them for suffering. It's the very beginning of the persecution that would come from Nero. And Nero was the very beginning of 10 different Roman emperors that persecuted the church. Before it's all said and done, there will be 10 different emperors that will persecute the church for 300 years, And there will be some 6 million Christians who will be killed under the Roman persecution. So this book of 1 Peter, talking about how we suffer, is incredibly important. It might not be important to you if you live and die in a time when there's not great persecution within the church. Maybe I should put place, because there's plenty of places today where when someone commits their lives to Christ they realize my life might be taken from me. And it amazes me that people still give their lives to Christ in such large numbers. There's revival happening in Arab worlds today. God's moving by the power of his spirit. And not because a lot of people go to minister in Arab countries. In fact, most missionaries avoid Arab countries. And yet God seems to find a way to bring the message of the gospel to those who are in need of forgiveness. And he brings it to him. So as, as he's writing about Christian conduct, in essence, he's saying, listen, live your lives in a way that God is going to be glorified. Don't love the world. Don't love the things of this world. Don't get caught up in the things of this world. You, you, you can kind of look back at verse 3 to get a sense of where, what he's talking about. He says, for we have spent enough times in our lifetime doing the will of the gentiles when we walked in lewdness lust drunkenness revelries drunken parties abominable idolatries in regard to these they think it's strange that you do not run in the same dissipation in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you you and i as christians live differently we endeavor to live holy and and the world doesn't know how to handle us the world doesn't know what to think of us as christians So now he kind of begins to wrap the entire book up. He's going to get into more suffering at the end of this chapter. But in the middle, he begins to talk to us about our daily conduct. And he says this in verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. How, How long ago was that written? Almost 2,000 years ago, the end of all things is at hand. And we go, okay, if they thought the end of all things were at hand when Peter wrote this in around 64 AD, and here we are almost 2,000 years later and Jesus hasn't come back, then the end of all things weren't at hand. Well, a couple of things. We all know the passage that says that a day is like a thousand to the Lord, and a thousand days, a thousand years is like a day. I'll get it right sooner or later. I just keep going at it until I get it right. So to you and I, 2,000 years have passed, and we say, where's the promise of his coming? And and what makes me think he's going to come tomorrow? And God says, it's only been a couple days. Give me some time. I'll get there. Now, I don't know whether the Lord's going to come back tomorrow or five years or 10 years or 100 years. That's not the point. The point is, there's there's two aspects. Number one, that we believe that he could come back at any moment. And in that sense, because Jesus could come back before this service is done, then the day of the Lord is at hand. Every bit as much as it was at hand for them. All he is saying is, Jesus could come back at any moment. Jesus set it up that way. He said, no one knows the time of the return. The father's the only one who knew. And even in Jesus's human chosen, limited human form, deity in the flesh, he didn't know when the time when he was gonna come back was. So no one knows. No Herald Camping or future Herald Camping will be able to tell you when Jesus is going to come back. God wanted it that way. He wanted you living like it could happen today, but he wanted you knowing that it might not happen in your lifetime. That you would be ready now that it could happen, but knowing I must occupy until I come, until he comes. And so Jesus told a parable of a guy that went out on a trip and he was delaying, his, uh, his coming back to them was delayed. And he told these guys, you occupy until I return. And he didn't come back on the expected day. And so some of them got a little lazy. Some of them thought he delays his returning. They began to abuse their positions. They began to abuse the other servants. And then he came back on a day they didn't expect it. Jesus will come back in a day we don't expect him. I don't expect it to look very apocalyptic when Jesus returns. A lot of burning smoke and rubble buildings with low-flying helicopters. I think it'll be like when the rain started to fall with Noah. People were marrying and giving in marriage. Life was just going on. It was just continuing. And all of a sudden, it's raining. Now, the weird thing about it was it hadn't ever rained up until that point. The Bible says, but a mist came up from the ground and watered the ground. So all of a sudden, it started raining just out of the blue. Noah had been working on the ark for a hundred years and all of a sudden it started to rain and so it will be when Jesus returns. It'll be at a time we don't expect it. People will be getting married. People will be making their plans. Everybody will have uh, their plans ruined by Jesus coming back all of a sudden. The time of Jesus, his return is at hand. The fact that it's been 2,000 years doesn't make this verse any less powerful to us all it's saying to us is the end of all things is at hand is that Jesus could come back at any moment. If, uh, if he comes back today, what will he find? If he comes back into our lives today, what will he find? So he says, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Because he could come back at any moment, he's going to tell us several things we need to do. That's where this whole study comes from. He could come back at any moment. So be serious and watchful in your prayers. Know that your prayers... Make a difference. The Bible says that you have not because you ask not. You do not receive when you ask because you ask amiss, wanting to spend it on your own pleasures. That means that this gets really, really complicated here. You ready? It means if if you don't ask, you don't get. I heard somebody say, well, listen, prayer doesn't change things. Prayer changes me. That's like a kind of like a deep thing to to say. It's kind of like a, whoa. It's kind of deep to think about, but it's not true. Prayer changes things. You happen to be one of the things that changes, but prayer changes things. Jesus said, ask and keep asking, and it will be given to you. Knock and keep knocking, and the door will be opened to you. Seek and keep seeking, and you will find There's no sense there in which the door was going to be opened if I wasn't knocking. If I wasn't seeking that I would find if I wasn't seeking. Or that I would receive if I'm not asking. Therefore, be watchful and diligent in your prayers. Look around you. See what needs to be prayed for. See who needs to be prayed for. Be serious in your prayers. Realizing that it changes things and it works in people's lives. God moves because we pray. So we, the time of Jesus is at hand or the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Take your prayers seriously. They make a difference. He goes on to say then in verse eight, and above all things, have a fervent love for one another. Now, I love that having a fervent love for one another is what he says about being above all things. Because there are those that, you, you ever notice that certain Christians get their little pet areas that they like to harp on? Maybe it's fasting, they started fasting, so they run around and tell everybody else they need to fast. Maybe it's praying, they started praying a lot, so they run around and tell everybody else how much they need to be praying. When really what they're doing, they they wanna bring attention to the fact that they're fasting. They wanna bring attention to the fact that they're praying. I'm not saying fasting isn't good. I'm not saying praying isn't good. I'm not saying anything else wouldn't be good, but God says above all things, have a fervent love for one another. There's a little bit of redundancy in that. Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. I believe it is our, our number one key in evangelism. I believe we can share with people. We can go out on the streets and we can street witness. We can share with people that we're working with. And when they come into our body, when they come into our, in, into our midst, if we don't have love, then they're not going to, to believe that we are his disciples. They might look somewhere else. And so it's, it's what I pray for most often for our body. That God would give us a love for one another and give us opportunities to express that love for one another. Now, Jesus said a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. The Bible says, there, now there's faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love which is a pretty amazing statement when you think about it. Because faith is the means by which you are saved. Without faith, you can't be saved. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We are saved by grace through faith. It is not of your works, lest any man could boast. So faith is pretty amazing. Without it, you would find yourself separated from God forever. Hope is a pretty significant thing. If you don't believe that, Try living without hope I think that to be hopeless Is probably one of the worst conditions That man can face When you are hopeless It's why having Jesus in your life No matter what comes your way You always have the hope of eternity You always have the hope that God Is moving and working in your life Now faith and hope are great But the greatest of these is love Now, there's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. He was trying to tell us the importance for you and I to walk in love. In fact, I think that if we don't walk in love, then we're not really followers of Christ. It is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. But it's love, it's the means by which we know that we are mature. How do I know you're mature? because I can quote the Bible, because I can tell people what to do, because I act spiritual. No, because you love one another. So love is the greatest that you and I can do amongst one another, and it becomes, it becomes that which the world sees and identifies in us as Christians. Now, he says here, above all things, which is pretty, pretty good, above everything, have a fervent love for one another. Fervent. The word love means to be, un- it's unconditional love. Above all things, have a fervent love for one another. That we are just sold out on really loving one another. That that is our commitment to each other. Now, I believe that if we make that the number one priority in our Christian walk, you might say, you know, I'm just struggling with cussing, I'm trying to quit. When something goes wrong, there I go. So I'm just, the thing I'm really working on is no longer cussing. And the thing you would need to work on really is walking in love above everything and everything else will come in line. doesn't matter what it is. Love fulfills all the law and all of the prophets. And so while we are occupying and waiting for Jesus to return, We are diligent in our prayers, but we also love one another because it says love covers a multitude of sins. I have said before that I would rather do what is wrong from the motive of love than to do the right thing from another motive. Because if my motive is love, if I love you and I am doing something because I love you, then even if it's wrong, love covers a multitude of sins. Because the motive is love If you can do all kinds of other things Yea, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels But have not love I become like sounding brass and a clanging gong Which, by the way, are, is no fun to hear Clanging gongs are no fun You can have all knowledge You can understand all mysteries You can know whether or not Bigfoot really exists Or Nessie You can know it all Literally But you know love doesn't mean anything You can give your body to be burned. And if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. So love becomes that thing that is everything for us. That if we make it our highest priority, everything else will fall into place. So in other words, no wonder he says, above all things, have a fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. And connected to that, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. To be hospitable, the word hospitable here, it's an interesting word. It literally means to be found by a guest. That there's a guest out there and you make yourself able to be found by a guest. The Bible tells us that we need to be hospitable to strangers. The Bible says that the qualifications of a pastor is that he would be hospitable, that he would be found by a guest. He'd make himself available to be able to be found by a guest and be hospitable without grumbling. Because to be hospitable sometimes is a little bit of work. And then he says, as each one of you has received a gift, minister it to one another. We're above all things to have that fervent love and we're to be hospitable, but each one of us has received a gift and the purpose for that gift is to minister to each other. Now, listen carefully. Each one of us has received a gift. That means you. You say, everybody else in here has received a gift but not me. Everyone in the body of Christ has received a gift. First of all, you receive the Holy Spirit and then that's the gift of the Spirit and then you received a gift of the Spirit. There's only one gift of the Spirit that is not for service. That's what the word minister means. When it says minister it to one another, it's serve one another. I really wish it was even translated that way. As each one of you has received a gift, then serve one another with it. That's the idea. There's only one spiritual gift that is not for service. There's one spiritual gift that is for you. You know what what that gift is? The most controversial of all the gifts. Does that give you any help? Tongues, right? Prophecy may be a little controversial, but tongues. You know, you guys don't believe in the Holy Spirit, somebody told me years ago. Because you don't leave room in between your worship songs to speak in tongues. We don't believe in the Holy Spirit, I said. We're a, we believe in a duity, not a trinity. We believe in the Father, the Son, and not the Holy Spirit. Of course, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And you relate speaking in tongues to believing in the Holy Spirit or to believing in the baptism of the Holy Spirit? People want to argue today about whether or not there's a baptism of the Spirit. Well, read Acts chapter 8 and tell me whether or not you think there's another experience with the Holy Spirit. You find that the gospel is preached in Samaria. You find that people get saved and baptized. And then when Peter and John show up, they haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit yet. And so they pray for them and they receive the Holy Spirit. And when Simon the sorcerer sees that they have the Holy Spirit, which is made manifest by gifts of the Spirit, then Simon wants to buy the power to fill people with the Holy Spirit. Peter says to Simon the sorcerer, your money perish with you. And it is said in that text that they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. So it makes reference to the infilling of the Spirit being the baptism of the Spirit. Now you say, well, there's no other place in the Bible where it doesn't ever say directly that you're to be baptized in the Spirit, so I don't believe in the baptism of the Spirit. I don't care if you want to call it the baptism of the Spirit, the infilling of the Spirit, the empowering of the Spirit, the upon experience of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't matter to me. It's obvious that God gives his Spirit for power. And along with that power comes the gifts of the Spirit to be used by him. That you and I, first of all, can minister to one another. Now, the Holy Spirit is with us before we're saved. When we go to Jesus and drink, Jesus said, if any of you come unto me and drink, out of you is going to gush torrents of living water. That means everywhere you go, Christian, there are torrents of living water flowing out of you in the spiritual realm. You don't realize it. Sometimes we forget about it. We need to be reminded. That's why people around us go, I'm sick of you preaching at me. You're like, I didn't say anything to you. I mean, you're sick of me preaching at you. Because out of you is gushing torrents of living water. Before you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit was with you, convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But the moment you gave your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit came in. He's inside of you. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that no one can say Jesus is Lord but by the power of the Spirit. Doesn't mean you can't say those words. It means you can't say them and mean them. You can't say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit being inside of you. So every Christian has the Holy Spirit inside of them.
0: Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you. And His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses, our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco, meets saturdays at 6 p.m and sundays at 9 45 a.m our west campus south of palo verde and i-10 meets sunday mornings at 8 30 and 11 a.m our midweek service times are wednesday evening at 6 p.m at our east campus and 7 15 p.m at our west campus if you prefer you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org